Today on 10-1, we speak with actress Mackenzie Davis. Among her many impressive credits, Mackenzie has been in some incredible projects, such as Blade Runner, an Emmy-nominated episode of Black Mirror, Happiest Season, and Grace in the new installation of Terminator Dark Fate. You can also see her now as the lead in HBO's Station Eleven. Mackenzie and I met years ago in acting class in Montreal. We didn't become good friends until we both enrolled in theater school at the neighborhood Playhouse in New York City to study the Meisner technique. We spent two years absorbing the lessons of theater school and then went off on our ways to build our careers. The one good thing that came out of the pandemic was that Mackenzie was supposed to shoot Station Eleven in Chicago, but because of the pandemic, the shoot was relocated to Toronto, where I now live. And in true stalkery fashion, she rented a place around the corner for me for a few months. So this was pre-vaccine. So we spent many nights sitting on one of our front porches, midwinter, wrapped up in blankets and obviously some bottles of wine to keep us warm. We spent many nights going over the lessons of theater school, what we've learned by actively working, and what we are still confused about in the entertainment industry. So this episode is an extension of one of our porch hangs about career, industry, and life. Here we are inside Mackenzie Davis. Hey, Mac. Hi, Carol. Thanks for being on my podcast. Oh, I'm so excited. I, I'm sorry it was such an annoying thing to schedule. Uh, we are on different continents, so that's hard. It It is hard. I find that... Uh, I, as you know, I just moved to London and the time difference, like it feels like there should be a really practical, easy way of dealing with it. Like you wake up in the morning, you have a bunch of texts from like a different time and emails and stuff and you should read them and then write them down and then attend to all of them. Like the way you have to handle anything in your life. And for some reason I like wake up, read everything and then never think about it again. And I've become so much less productive um, and good at being a friend since I moved here, which much to the delight of everyone. <laughs> well, I finally got you. And um, yeah, I have some questions for you. Cool. So you went to the Neighborhood Playhouse. I did. And shortly after graduating, you booked uh, a role in Drake Doremus's movie called Breathe In. I did. And then you graduated to some studio films like What If and That Awkward Moment, the show Halt and Catch Fire and The Martian. Mm-hmm. I like dream of the day where I no longer have to audition. I hope that I one day get there. At what point in your career did you get to stop auditioning or do you still audition? Tell me. I still audition. I don't audition as much as I did when I got out of theater school, but I still audition for things. I think the audition just like takes a different form. I mean, I still have, I'm not pretending that it's the same because it's so annoying to make self tapes. Mm-hmm. And, um, I always liked auditioning in the room just cause I could at least like feed off the energy, but I absolutely hate making self tapes, but that sort of relationship to, um, like pleasing and rejection still exists. It just takes the form of like meetings and like going into a meeting. That's kind of a general meeting where you know what's on the table and but like you kind of treat it like a date at the beginning and I was just talking to another friend who's an actor about this because she had a a meeting with somebody that she was really really excited about for a role she really really wanted and before she was going there she was like I don't know should I be like 
really uh, charming, like we're friends and making her laugh, or do I need to be really serious so she knows how seriously I take this project? And it's, uh, it's again, not harder, but I think more confusing to like audition by way of meetings rather than a script because you're kind of selling yourself a little bit more, like trying to hone and then present the version of you that you think would be desirable for them to work with rather than like preparing a role and doing it um, the way. Right. That is kind of like a first date. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Except there's a lot of money on the table and a career on the table. Truly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, it relates to every other job you've ever had. Um, So is it like your agent calls you and says, so-and-so would love for you to read this script. Would you be interested? And, And let's say you read it and you are interested do they then say, okay, they're into meeting you, but there's here are the other four women who are up for the part? No, I mean, sometimes you'll know who else is going for it. And a lot of the time it's like, you don't know and you don't want to know. I kind of don't want to know because I think more information is less good for me. Like I would rather just go in blind and I can't, you know, if it's me and you and another friend of ours, I'm not like, oh, well, if Carolina's going out for it, I'll be a better version of like Carolina to get it. Like you, I don't know. I don't find that information helpful. I like knowing afterwards, uh, what the pool was, but, um, but going into it, it's like, doesn't feel relevant to me to know who my, who else they think is sort of like me, but maybe better. Um, so you played Grace in the most recent Terminator installment. Was that an actual like read the script audition or was that? Yeah. Okay. So you, did you have to do a self tape? No, no, that was, that was read the script audition. I didn't have to do a self tape cause it was pre pan and I was in Los Angeles and I went into, to a casting office and met with, uh, the director was there, Tim Miller was there and the casting director and did an audition. And then I think had a call back then or maybe just like a month passed and I called my agents and was like, so I guess that's not going to happen. Right. And, uh, weirdly me asking then all of a sudden they were like, Oh no, they, they like, you should go have a meeting with Tim or something. And then we had a meeting and then, and he showed me some like special effects stuff that he was some pre visualizations for the character. And then there was a screen test, um, like right before I went out of town, I was shooting something in Ireland and we had a screen test, but it was like this very long process with very little information in between. It's not like, like this sort of like, um, like a reality show where you're like passing through the phases all the time until you get to the final boss level. I guess I'm describing a video game. Um, but it was more of like audition and then just months pass and then have another audition and then months pass. And then all of a sudden you're screen testing. Um, so that was my experience. <laughs> it's so not fun, is it? You're just like, somebody tell me. Yeah, like it is and it isn't. I, I, I have a, a like varying relationship to, uh, rejection and expectation. I think really early on in my career, I was so surprised to be working at all that I developed this um, sort of surprise whenever I was cast. Like I never expected to get a role. So I really was never disappointed. I was just always surprised. And then I started to think I like became conscious of that after a while and was like, maybe you should 
expect more for yourself and like try harder rather than just being, it felt very Canadian to me, honestly, to just be thankful all the time for being invited to like the big party. Um, and then, yeah, when I tried to, to become a bit more American, then I developed a stronger relationship to rejection. Cause I was like, Oh, you can actually want something and be disappointed. You didn't get it. You don't just have to be like surprised that anyone would have you in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so are you better at bouncing back now, even though it feels like the stakes are probably higher, like they're bigger parts and stuff and things that you want more? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I feel worse at bouncing back now. I feel like early on, I was just couldn't believe I was there. And then I and then now, I don't know, I'm really, I think I'm more, this is sort of not the question, but I'll, but here's the answer. Um, I think I'm more sensitive to being a part of something that I didn't fully believe in that didn't like that didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to and bouncing back from the disappointment and like heartbreak of that than I am of a job I didn't get. Wait, what do you mean? Like you are more disappointed um, when a project doesn't turn out the way you anticipated? Yeah. Like there's something about doing a job and it, not quite not I don't mean critically or but just having you know a finished version of the movie or the show or whatever in your mind and it not quite matching up and feeling almost this like betrayal you're like oh I thought I was making something different and then I think that I have less of a bounce back from that than just not getting a job because I'm like well there's only so many jobs available there's so many great actresses like of course, I'm not going to get cast in most of them. But like back to what you said about feeling disappointment, that was a huge lesson for me once doing a movie. And then I realized that I had made the movie in my head. Yeah. And then when obviously the movie was different than the one yeah. I had imagined in my head, I was yeah. that was a hard lesson to be like, oh, you're not the director, producer, writer, cinematographer. You're just one piece of it. Yeah, but I mean, how do you how do you get on the same page as that? Because ideally, if I was directing, I would want not everybody to be bound to my version of the movie. Cause I also think that can be kind of boring maybe cause you're not getting these sort of surprise performances of people thinking that they're in a different movie, but I would want people to know the whole picture and, and what I was imagining, not down to the edit maybe, but I've worked with directors that have, who've known the movie down to the edit before we started shooting. And it's so pleasurable. You feel so taken care of and so, um, I mean, it's like anything where absolute freedom isn't having no walls. Absolute freedom is knowing where the walls are and being able to push against them a bit, like having no parameters to performance or to what a thing is, is actually kind of oppressive because you don't feel taken care of at all. But being in a, a movie or a show where you feel completely taken care of because somebody's vision is so clear and so prepared and specific then there's like all this space to move within that which is just yeah the dream yeah I'm always still shocked at um how little information actors get I mean I get that the I get the people that are making the movie or the tv show have a billion things on their plate uh but sometimes I wonder like sometimes you don't meet your co-stars until the day you start shooting sometimes you don't meet the director until the day you're shooting yeah and you're like Okay, so in the moment right now, I have to decide what this movie is. It, it It's like a bit quirky or it's not quirky at all. I have to decide right now because I haven't spoken to anyone about it. 
It's the weirdest thing because it's so hard to get things made at a certain level. And then it seems like there's so much stuff that's made that's maybe greenlit or put into production before it should be like before all of the ducks are in the row. Do you say that? All of your ducks are in a row? Ducks in the row. That's weird, wrong, but I'm not sure why. I don't know. There was something about the tenses there that was working. All of the ducks are in the row. Um, In a row. And so many things fall to the wayside. I mean, working conditions fall to the wayside. The sort of preparation, like for the crew, the the people are in a rush to build sets and to get everything ready when, when it, I don't know. I, I guess it's just this feeling of, of like a glut of projects coming into town at a time. And there's only one window to shoot something in. So all of this stuff has to happen so fast and so last minute where you're not meeting your co-stars and other people don't have time to do things on the crew level to build sets and to prepare things. And everybody's working under these time frames where I don't know, they're not really being not taken care of, but it's just so expensive. Sorry. I'm really explaining this poorly, but it's so expensive to make media, to make films and television. It's like, you'd think that it was all. Yeah. That you'd, that you'd really have a handle on, on all of the components to make it the best possible thing it could be. And there's so many things where you're like, Oh, so I'm just not going to meet the person who's like, playing my husband for this i mean it's it's wild to to be like but we're supposed to be familiar with each other and each other's bodies and we're not going to interact at all until the day we meet on set but isn't that going to make the thing shitty like why are we spending all this money if you're not going to make the individual components as good as the marketing that you plan to do for the eventual product yeah and that part makes me feel really cynical where it's like well maybe we are just making content Mm-hmm. So, okay. So let's say you decide to take on a part and you finally get the script because sometimes that can take a while or there's a lot of changes. What is your approach to preparing the part? Like, let's say you get the script a month from uh, principal photography. Like, what do you do? Um, It's so funny because I... I knew we were going to talk about this and I was thinking about how, cause you and I went to theater school together. Um, something that was said to us in theater school that like really resonated with me and also gave me a bit of a complex was this idea that an actor should be like a craftsman, like a carpenter where you, you wouldn't hire a carpenter to come into your house and build a cabinet. And then they'd come show up to work one day and be like, I don't have my hammer. Sorry and the nails aren't here. So we just like, can't do the job. And I love this idea that there was this expectation of professionalism that wasn't like, uh, uh, flighty or flaky or any of the sort of stereotypes associated with actors or with artists, but that there was a a, like diligence and a professionalism, but it also creates this expectation that there's like, a method or a like type of preparation that people do that keeps them feel that keeps them like in that sort of craftsman mentality. And for me, I felt so much pressure about this early on in my career being like, all right, well, what's this guy's thing? So that's going to be my thing. And I'll figure out how to prepare for a role that way. We're really like, every role is completely different. Some stuff's really easy. Like, and, and I mean, some stuff you just know innately and you don't have to torture yourself over to, 
get to the end point. And some stuff's really hard. <laughs> and like, I guess there isn't, I don't have a method of preparation that's the same for all things. It's mostly a period of like intense anxiety. I read the thing over and over and over again. I find the stuff, which is sometimes like hard to listen to in your head that just like doesn't um, fit right. Like that, that you're having an emotional reaction to that isn't like in sync with everything else. Then I figure out, is that me or is there something in the script or the story or the character that needs to be altered a little bit for it to like track with what I'm, I'm sort of thinking about and approaching with the character. Um, I don't know. It's so, uh, it's such a clusterfuck. Like it's so not linear and like non-transferable and it's so much just like thinking and walking and reading and thinking and talking a little bit and then reading again and reading again and then having a conversation with whoever the creator is, who you're like making it with and making sure that you're doing the, the, the most interesting and also most truthful version of this thing and not putting being really interesting above being like truthful with it and trying to sort of, mm-hmm. I don't know, hold yourself to that standard. I guess one of the things that I loved when we were in theater school, what I loved watching you perform was that I never knew where it was going to go, or I never knew, I could never predict what you were going to do. And I think that's what kind of makes you really electric when I watch you even on screen still. Um, And so when you, when you prep your scenes, are you like how much of it are, you know, there's, there's the adage that you should like prepare, 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 and then just like throw it up in the air like how much do you, cause I, early on in my career, I would prep, prep, prep. And then I would hold on to the prep so hard that I felt like I lost, um, the spontaneity. So like, how much would you say you, like, are you good at letting it go? And is that why you, you're so electric to watch? Well, thank you for the compliment. I'm glowing. Um, so I think there's two, like we, the school we went to was a Meisner school and the like base thing, like before all of the exercises and the like leaving the room to prepare and all of the sort of attendant parts of the Meisner technique, the very first thing is like living truthfully under imaginary circumstances and being more interested in the person across from you than you are in yourself. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff from theater school that I kind of found restrictive or not like that useful in practice. And then there's that baseline thing that is the most interesting person to watch is the person that's deeply interested in the person across from them. It's never the person that's interested in their own experience, their own enjoyment, like the, their, the beauty of their feelings in that moment is just the most boring sort of embarrassing thing to watch in the world. And I think without having to like think about it too much because we practice it so much also that we were in a Meisner class in Montreal together when I was in college. Um, that thing of the technique is so hammered in at this point that like pay attention to who you're talking to and don't think about your own lines <laughs> after you said like have a goal that you're trying to get from the other person and put all of your attention on them. And that's, Mm -hmm. satisfying for you too because you're not just like anxious about what you're doing in a scene or a moment you're you're 
fully invested in the person across from you. So in terms of preparation, <laughs> um, I don't know. I really just try and make sense of the, the, the like choices that I'm making and make sure that I understand. Again, it's like so rudimentary theater school stuff that I find really helpful of like, who am I? Where am I going? Where am I coming from? Why do I need to get there? What happens if I don't get there? The like very basic things. And then if it's good writing and, and like you're working with someone opposite you, everything else kind of comes together, I think. Have you gotten better at that? Or is that something that kind of you were able to do straight from the get go? I almost think I've gotten worse at it. Like you've gotten in your own head? Yeah, more like, uh, or like I have to think about it more or the more I work, the more I feel a pressure to do that I don't know like something more than I've done before or that it was never I don't know like just the the way that we spin ourselves out into thinking that um what was successful in the past like was too easy and you need to torture yourself more to get somewhere or, or I don't know I really felt it like on a basic level quite immediate and easy when I was younger and I feel now I like think about things too much probably across the board <laughs> not just in acting why do you do you feel like you've gotten better um I feel like I feel like there's this beautiful moment sometimes when you're working on a project for more than 10 days I think if you work on a project for less than 10 days it's torture because it's like being at a new high school mm -hmm. and you're like, who do I sit with at lunch? And do people like me? And and is that a mm -hmm. nice person? Like you're constantly in this, like, and you're still trying to figure out your character, but there's something beautiful that happens for me after about day 10, where all of a sudden I'm like, I get who the character is. I don't have to care about my lines anymore because they're like, they eventually get kind of tattooed in your head and you're not thinking about them anymore. And there is this like, huge freeing thing where they could send where, where they could say like i'm really sorry we wrote we rewrote all your lines and gave you all these monologues today can you do it and you're like yeah no because i knew who i am and i know my environment and i feel safe and i mm. i can do it so mm -hmm. i feel like i've gotten better at that i mean the thing like before i start any job i feel like the day before and then the day of, and then the day after this, like, you've never done this before. Like, what are you doing? You have no idea how to do this. And then, yeah, you get a week or 10 days in and, and suddenly you're like, Oh, I know how to do this. I know how to act and like be on set with people. And, and I can figure this out. And I think especially, yeah. Yeah. I'm a week away from shooting something and I want to puke right now. Yeah. Like I'm, I feel you so stressed out about what the crew is going to be like, what the director is going to be like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are they happy that they cast me? Am I, am I going to do a good job? Do I understand what I'm doing here? I mean, I think that sets are like social experiments as well. I mean, there's the job part of it. And then there's the, you show up at work, you're surrounded by people every second of the day you're being watched. You are like constantly, at least for the first few days feeling like people are watching and very disappointed with like the choice that they decided to cast you. Uh, and it's such an intense sort of um, pressure cooker. And then you go home at night, especially if you're working out of town and you're like, well, 
here I am again, just me. <laughs> like the, the highs and the lows are really, it just feels like a, a weird secondary part of this job. Like the, the practical life of it. That's, um, feels like an intense psychological test. Yeah. Do you have any tricks on how to stay mentally healthy when you're not working from home? I mean, because it can be lonely. It's like all of a sudden you're surrounded by strangers. Then all of a sudden you're alone for four days because they don't need you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I weirdly, well, I mean, we just spent a bunch of time together because I was shooting station 11 in Toronto and it was a very intense experience because of the pandemic and the shows about a pandemic and there was lockdown in Toronto for 11 months or the entire time that I was there was only a portion of the lockdown, all the stuff you were dealing with as well. But, um, I do feel like I managed to carve out healthy behavior with, you know, exercising every morning and, and honestly like cooking a lot and having every Saturday I'd have my castmates over and one of the directors or, or different people on the weekends and have like a nice sort of group exhale of this very intense environment we were all living in. And then we'd reset on Monday and go back to work, but it was this really nice, um, I think being able to, without making too big of a deal about it, but like it really satisfies me to be able to take care of people because I find at work and when I'm away, I'm thinking about myself and my own interior monologue so much that having a, a chance to like take care of other people or like provide in some way for them is such a, a relief from just being inside my own stupid head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to introduce a new section called um, Theater School, We or No. And I'm going to ask you about advice that we got from theater school. Okay. And tell me if it's a we or a no. Okay? Okay. So the first one is send postcards to people. (laughs) (laughs) Explain. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but maybe other people need to know more. Um, When we were graduating theater school, we were told you need to keep everyone updated on what you're up to. So print a postcard with your headshot on it. And every time you get a job, like scrawl a little note and send it to every casting director. We've spoken about this at length. Um, I say no. I also think it's personal. I think it's no for me. And I think the broader lesson is like, when I was in theater school and told to do that, I was like, what? No, that's not cool. Don't do that. Like, that doesn't, that that's not you in charge. That's like, I don't like the feeling of seeking for somebody's approval all the time, even though I chose a very weird profession. Like I would like to have faith that with hard work and I don't know, there's just something about it that doesn't work for me, but that's not to say it couldn't ever work, but I think you need to act in a way that is, um, that makes sense to you. Yeah. That compliments your taste. Like that's not my taste. I don't believe in that. I don't like it for me. I think 
it must work because there, or I don't know if it must work, but there's some advice out there because of the, you've had some results from it. For me, I don't think that makes sense and it's not a way I'd like to present myself, but I think it's also really fucking hard to graduate from theater school and have absolutely no control over your life, no agent, no direction, no idea what to do. I mean, I crashed after we graduated from the neighborhood playhouse and was just like, which is so stupid now to look back on that I'm 34, but was like, you're 24, you've never worked, you're shriveling up, no one's ever going to hire you. And I just like fully imploded right after we graduated that I get the temptation to like, well, I have no control anywhere else. So I'm going to get some postcards printed up with my face on them and send them out to everyone in town because that's going to work more than just sitting in my apartment. But um, it's a big no for me. Okay. Number two. And this is more for people that are graduating from theater school. This is just general theater school advice. Um, do every audition that comes your way, we or no? Um, yeah, I think as long as it doesn't betray your, um, values in some way, there's definitely things that I've not auditioned for really early on in my career. Cause I'm like, but I don't want to be that person, or I don't want to tell a story about women in this way, or, uh, I don't want to work with people that talk about whatever this thing I believe in, in this way. But I think in terms of like, cheesy shit and campy stuff and things that might not necessarily be like your personal taste um you can really grow to like auditioning despite what i said before hate doing it in in the confines of a room but i think taking the edge off and just being like i come into the space i do my shit and then i get out of this space is uh is a good skill to practice um and not to be too precious about it I still haven't, I still haven't learned how to do that. Like, like going into rooms still gives me diarrhea, you know? Then maybe it's not fair for me to call it a skill. It's like, there's certain things that I still haven't learned because I'm not hardwired that way. For some reason, being in a room of people and being able to like feed off their energy a little bit always felt like a cheat for me. So I liked auditions because I was like, oh, I all of a sudden have these nerves I can use that are feel like kind of full of stuff that, um, maybe won't be there on the day if I get the job because I'll be comfortable. But in this environment, I feel kind of like exciting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next one. Create your own work. We or no? Of course. Why not? I don't know. I'm just throwing them out there. Oh, okay. Yeah. God, we, we, we. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Take big chances in auditions. We or no? We. I mean... Do I take big chances in auditions? I don't know. I, oh my God. Yeah. Cause if nothing else, wouldn't you rather be like an exciting person to watch than, I don't know. What's the alternative right. than what? Then like, right. Cause you're, you know, sometimes you just want to. Well, there is no right. It's just like the, I think this is the thing that always protected me against rejection too, is no matter who got the role, I mean, please, within reason, like I'm also sensitive to this stuff sometimes, but I'd normally be like, oh, but I'm nothing like them. So like, that's great because I couldn't do what they can do because I'm only the way I am. And I only use me to audition with, like, I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't create a whole different person. I'm like dialing up or down aspects of myself and like how I approach a character but it's fully through my brain and experiences and like 
emotional sensitivities and vulnerabilities that I do this. So if it's, if you cast Carolina, I'm like, yeah, we like look alike. Like I can see us going out for the same parts, but my God, like she has a completely different point of view than I do. So that's so cool that she got it. So the big risk thing is like, well, yeah, you're the only person who would take that sort of risk. Even if it's like English accent, the way you're going to do it is so unique to you. So you're the only person that can do it in that way. Yeah. I actually found that things started getting easier for me in terms of work was when I stopped trying to get it right. And I was just like, well, this is how I'm going to do it. Hope you like it. Yeah. Well, then there is no right. Yeah. And that's probably like what we love about certain actors where you can just see who they are. There's not, yeah, we're not trying to smush down their personalities in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next one. The script is, this is something that we definitely learned in theater school. It was kind of drilled into us. I mean, we were studying, you know, John Patrick Shanley. That's a person, right? Uh-huh. Patrick Shanley. Yeah. And like yeah. we were studying these like big playwrights, um, <laughs> but we were taught the script is sacrosanct and you can't change an inch of dialogue as an actor. We or no? No, I mean depends with who, on who you're working with, but I mean, like that's the thing is it depends on who you're working with. Station Eleven, which I just shot, was so was such a like collaborative project between Patrick and I and and the other actors not in terms of like like it's his story and it's his show absolutely and I never could have thought of it but when it got to the the actual scenes and the words we were always working together to find like what's the most truthful and like true to each of these people way of getting to this end goal it was which is such a nice way to work because it's not this like dictatorship although yes I do love working with somebody but I don't know you can like both but I I I think the idea that we're we're vessels through which the words move is like there's probably like a once in a generation writer where that's true like I think that collaborating with somebody and finding the right or the way that that is most resonant for you is also a really valuable part of the experience and and having the space to do that is so important Mm -hmm. what do you think um i i try i wrote a script last year and what Mm -hmm. i realized was that i would change words in the script in order to just shorten the line to make sure that i could just get the answer onto one line instead of two because after you do that on mm-hmm. 90 pages, you save yourself five pages and you can add in different scenes. And then, so now when I look at scripts, I'm like, why did they say it that way? Oh, right. That's the shortest way of saying, of responding to that question. Mm-hmm. And so I've also realized mm-hmm. that part of writing is screenwriters being limited by how much they can write. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they take out the O's and the, well, and... I think like they take all that shit out because they can't use up the space on the page. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm a lot more loose with the dialogue. I mean, sometimes there's like really particular words that you should hit, but yeah, I think I'm a lot more loose than I was before. Oh, I thought you were going in the exact opposite direction. 
now I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, well, I have auditioned for Aaron Sorkin stuff and been like, I should know this word perfect because that's yeah. the kind of writer that he is. Yeah. Um, are you are you a good memorizer? Can you? Yeah. Are you good at memorizing really like snappy fast? Yeah. Really? Like just you just like read it and you know it or do you study it? I mean, it takes me a minute, but like I it feels like such a muscle, which again is like I'm treating it like it's a skill, but it might just be that's something I'm good at. But I, I find it pretty easy to memorize things. I don't need like days and days um and i just like drill it over and over but i don't have a photographic memory or anything i just it does feel like what do you mean you drill it like do you rec- do i what do you like record it do you record it or do you just like say it over and over yeah i record i record the other person's lines on like voice memo and then leave spaces for me and so i'll like cook dinner and be running lines all the time like i or going for a walk and running lines um and then if it's like a if it's a monologue, I'll do like memorize the first line, then go back, then try and memorize the second line, then go back and do the first two lines, then the third, then go back and do the three lines. You know what I mean? So you're like running it all so many times by adding one line at a time. But it does like, I feel like doing TV is the best, best, best way to get good at memorizing. And my first job was in TV or one of my first jobs. Um, because you're just, memorizing so much dialogue every day and then co- forgetting it like never it never comes back it's not like i used to worry that it made my which is like a true a revealing um lack of understanding about how the brain or biology works but i was like i've grown my short term memory too much my long term memory has sacrificed space so that i can have this sort of disposal bin in my brain for like lines that only need to be known for two days and then never return to again versus doing a play where it'll be in your mind for years because you've done mm-hmm. it so many times. Is that how it works, Carol? Uh, no, no, I really don't think so. Mm-hmm. You would know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Last one, which maybe we already touched on, but make a business card and put your headshot on it. We or no. Well, I think having business cards as a human is like a fun prop and anyone can tell you that about me. Um, but no, I don't know. I was actually just talking with my boyfriend about this, that like, I think I find self-promotion and, and like very early on found self-promotion with actors so deeply embarrassing that I just never did anything. And he was like, but do you ever celebrate? anything in your life because you've just decided that it's all embarrassing and like not to be done so I have like such a hard like rejection of anything that feels self-advertising um that you know probably could do more but not the business cards with the face on them I think that's just again the taste thing for me it doesn't track for me right and so I guess so many actors use social media as a tool to build their profile and then build, you know, a following and and then a living and hoping, you know, if I have like X amount of followers on Instagram, I'm going to get cast in more things, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, some people use it as just like a, 
this is the kind of person I am, you know, in case a director or casting wants to know, this is who I am. These are my pictures. This is what I do on the weekend, et cetera. Yeah. But you, you've never gone in the social media direction. Like you've never been on it or you've been on it so secretively that even your close friends slash me can't find you. <laughs> um, so what was the reasoning behind that? Uh, it didn't even really come from acting, although then it, one had to answer it for acting. I found Instagram, like I, I used it when I was younger and found, I don't, I don't know what personality trait this is, what you call this, but like, it felt like a fracturing of myself where I'd make a post with a joke on it or something and then feel like I was looking at like a version of myself that I didn't recognize anymore. There was something false in the person that I was presenting to the world. And, but I didn't want to delete it because that is literally Instagram. Yeah. It made me really uncomfortable. And so I deleted it for years. And then like last year got it again to have like, to just like stay in touch with friends. And I was moving around a lot and the pandemic, it felt like, all right, I guess I'll go on the internet. And I don't know. I do love memes a lot and I love receiving them. I have a really wonderful best friend who will just screenshot memes from Instagram and send them to me um, as a way of keeping me offline, but still connected to the internet. But I find it takes so much more than it gives as a human. And as an actor, I think it gives a lot of opportunities. And sometimes I feel like, like a dumb dumb, but I, I don't know. I'm uncomfortable with like sharing my life like that, even like, like you've seen my Instagram now, it has like four posts and they're mostly about bees. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I feel like vulnerable to people. Yeah. I don't know. It's not, it's just not for me. And, and honestly the like world of Instagram affects me in a, a negative way. Like it doesn't do good things for my mental health. So I, um, try and sort of yeah i think we found out this week from facebook that it's not good for anybody yeah it turns out that's like almost a plan um <laughs> yeah they good i'm very susceptible it's it's good but yeah i've missed out on all the big deals have your managers or agents or anyone uh wanted you to be on it no i have really lovely people i work with who like deeply understand who I am and also that I'm like inconsistent because there have been times where I'm like am I somebody who's like denying that you know the internet it like th that internet browsers are going to be a big deal in like the mid 90s and I'm just missing out on this thing and and totally behind everything and I should just accept it and then be a part of this world that we live in so like well you kind of have to to like really do it if you're going to do it like you you are selling yourself and your personal life and inviting people in. And if you know, you not an issue for me at all. So I'm not inflating my experience in the world, but you know, if you're on the street and you've shown everybody what your inside of your house looks like and your kids and what you guys do in the morning and how you and your boyfriend like to vacation and all, I don't have any kids, but, um, like this whole access to your world. And of course people are going to feel comfortable they feel like they know you and they, they're, they're going to feel comfortable asking for things from you and, and, and being a part of this world that you've shared so much. And I just think there's a real cost to the sort of financial and business opportunities that you get for sharing your life. And it means that your life isn't just your own anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And that seems like a big sacrifice to me. Would you ever want to, would you ever want to like be the face of something? Like, I feel like you keep a pretty low profile, but would you want to be like the face of Dior or like Prada or something? Hell yes. Are you kidding me? I would love to. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if you can do that without Instagram. It's like amazing. And a brand that you think is cool. Yeah. Okay. So you're not against more information. Sorry. I felt like I answered that boring. (laughs) You're not against necessarily promoting yourself. It's just, you don't want to do it on Instagram. No, but that's also as much of me as in, as is in movies or TV. It's not, it's not my intimacies and my like privacies and, and all my like little sadnesses and little kindnesses inside. I don't know, but there's also people who do Instagram. I'm making it sound like this exclusively corporate machine that like (laughs) robs people of their private life. There's people whose lives I follow that I, I love seeing inside their life and it makes me love them so much more and, um, and admire them so much. So I think it can be a really beautiful thing. It's just for me personally, I'm, I feel too permeable, maybe. So I put up on my wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, I want to talk about emotional preparation. Mm-hmm. And which is so... We we did a lot of it in theater school, but I don't think mm-hmm. any of us knew what we were doing. It was such a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. When you have a scene that you know is emotional, mm-hmm. for example, if I were to pick one, Everyone knows, let's say in Love Actually, when Emma Thompson opens the present from her husband, mm-hmm. Alan Rickman, hoping that it's a beautiful necklace that she saw in his pocket earlier, and it turns out it's just a Joni Mitchell CD. She goes to her room, and there's that perfect little tear that runs from her eye. She wipes it away and goes back to her family. Like, let's say you get a scene like that. How on the day like how do you prep that do you have a method i don't know i mean yeah so we had this sort of in my recollection of it probably not how it's meant to be wielded but like squeeze the emotions so tight out of the room batter yourself to get into a like devastated place and then enter the room and use that emotion kind of technique to emotional preparation when we were in school and i remember being on my first job and I had to, I was like in a stairwell with, uh, the woman playing my mom and, uh, and she's like a total pro and we both had to enter and maybe she just had to, oh yeah, I'd had to, to like, it was right after I graduated from theater school and, and I'd had to cry in this movie and was using all the tools that were given to me in theater school, which was like really sort of strangling this thing. And I was in a closet with her because we had to enter as though we were coming from a garage. And uh, and she had to come in and just be like bawling and screaming and yelling and having this. And we were just like sitting there quietly. There was no, I mean, I don't think we were talking, but it felt like light. And we were sort of like, oh, I was just waiting to go on for our scene in the movie. And she entered and was completely in that place without having to, to, do this like really manipulative work on herself to get there. And I think that's so, I mean, for me, it was the mark. It was like such a, a lesson for me about how being sort of like fluid and open to the reality of an experience is more powerful if you can get there than like removing yourself from the world you're about to enter to 
create an alternate reality to get you to a state and then hold on so tight to that emotion because the most important thing is that you cry in this part it's not it's that you like go Mm -hmm. in and are open and permeable and like can be affected by the world around you which i feel like has been more um yeah useful to me but for the scene that you're talking about i mean i don't know that shit's hard (laughs) because you know that the like christmas scene of opening the present all happens on a day and then the scene of her walking into the room by herself happens at the end of a day like three days later and she just walks in has a cry and then walks out and that's the entirety of the work it's not connected in any way it's like two completely different days where that work would be filmed and she has nobody to respond to and um and i don't know that can be hard it's hard i find uh and whether this is a cop-out or not is normally when it says that somebody cries in a or a character i'm playing cries in a script i try and like black it out and just delete that information from the scene because then all i'm thinking about is the fact that it's important that like i produce fluid here rather than it's important that i listen to everything that's going on in the scene all the stuff that came before how it makes me feel how all the information I have about this character and how it's going to like puncture or prod them in this moment, whether or not I cry feels irrelevant at that point. Like, did I feel everything that I, I want to feel? Am I like available to the experience that feels like a much mm-hmm. bigger deal than producing tears. But then once in a while, it's really important that you walk into a room and have cry a single tear and walk out. Um, and that stuff, I find the pressure of it is so hard so what if you have a scene where i don't know you get broken up with by the love of your life and the script is like Mm -hmm. you know they're asking you to have a big emotional outburst whether it's yelling whether it's crying whether it's you know some kind of emotional reaction and on the day you're just like fuck i feel empty inside i feel like nothing Mm -hmm. like the stove is empty like there's just nothing there like how do you work yourself up there like what do you do well i have two philip glass songs that i listen to that like actually are triggers for me that really put me into a state that i can go and and like if it is that sort of a thing i can go and really isolate myself and and i don't know they they're like a bit pavlovian for me at this point but i feel like in those like the the i just saw did you see the new james bond no not yet well, I just saw it and there's a point where Leia Seydu is like crying on the phone in a close-up looking into the distance at something that, again, you know, she's completely by herself talking to nobody. The thing that's making her cry is not in front of her face. And that stuff is is really hard because the the like, did you produce liquid does matter in that case. Like it's it's a, there's a tone and like, an archetype of this scene that needs to be delivered. And I find that stuff really difficult, but an example of that you gave of being broken up with and there needing to be this sort of big emotional arc. I feel like that's when Meisner stuff really comes is so like, that's the carpenter's tools, not the, can I cry all the time, but can I put all my attention on the other person to get what I want? Like stop thinking about what's expected of me in this scene, because that's, fucking boring to watch like 
nobody's like, she cried. Like who cares? It matters if I really, really, really want to convince somebody not to leave me. And I have like stakes that mean the world to me. And that if I don't convince them not to leave me, then I have to deal with the repercussions. But the whole scene, I'm like thinking that I'm going to convince them not to leave me because that's the most important thing. And then what comes after that feels like it's almost like dominoes falling. Like you just have to be kind of open to it. But I think removing that sort of expectation of the emotional part of the scene that you think is going to make the director, the producers or whatever, like the thing that it's supposed to be, if you can remove that expectation, which really like suffocates me sometimes, uh, then you can actually like live and breathe in the scene. But if all you're thinking about is it's important that I throw the plate or it's important that I cry here, then how are you going to do all the things that get you to that place? Cause like humans don't live like that. They throw the plate because they're not being heard and they need to like, make this person hear them in a moment when the only thing that matters is that they are heard, you know? Yeah. It's almost the expectation of wanting to hit certain notes. Uh, yeah. I'm human brains just don't think that way. Yeah. It's, it's funny because most humans don't want to cry yeah. and are doing everything in their power to not cry and to not lose um, their temper or to not throw the fucking plate. Mm-hmm. And then so when you're like, you have to produce liquid and cry, it becomes so uh, intimidating. Yeah, and just not, I find not interesting to watch. There's plenty of people who are good at crying on screen. That doesn't mean that they move you. Like it's Yeah, there's times where you're watching someone crying and it like looks pretty and you're like, I feel nothing. Yeah. And then there's another scene where I'm watching this French series right now where this mother, her baby gets killed and... She's always just sitting there in the, the the judge's chambers and I weep and she's just sitting there and I weep just because her, like you feel like she's going through it. Yeah. And trying to hold it yeah. together. I'm thinking of the, I, I just walked past this movie theater yesterday that had this Jim Jarmusch quote on it. So I'm not sure if it's Jim Jarmusch quote, but uh, where he says, life doesn't have a plot. So why should movies or stories have one, which feels like the same thing. Like you don't know what you're going to do from moment to moment. Why are you planning out a scene where the most important thing is that you cry because the writer put it in there? The most important thing is that you like do the active thing that you like convince someone not to leave you or like save your baby or whatever. Like the, the least important scene part of the scene is what happens after that. It's what like leads you to that point. Right. Mm-hmm. And on that um, note, I have to pee. Do you mind if I just go to the washroom quickly? Yeah, go pee. Okay. And this is a little 10-1 break, and we're back. What, um, I'm mostly asking you questions that I don't know the answer to. So, um, You don't know the answer to from me, or that you don't know the answer to in your own uh, life? That I don't know the answer to in my own life, and I don't know how to figure it out. Oh, cool. Um are you I'm sure I won't then? <laughs> well, you know what? We're not going to figure it out if we don't talk about it. Are you yeah. afraid of aging in this uh, industry? Uh, I, I am in a weird way. I, well, not in a weird way, but I, um, I don't feel like my career has been predicated on youth or beauty up until this point. 
but I also know that every career in our business is predicated on youth and beauty. I just kind of felt like I was mine for some reason felt like the, the, the focus wasn't on the way I looked a lot of the time in, in, um, the roles that I've played, but I feel this sort of like, how do you keep for myself as well? Like, how do you have a long career in this business? Like, how do you keep giving yourself over to people and leaving home and, and, and like having this sort of peripatetic lifestyle? Well, I don't know what that means. What's that mean? Uh, like all over the world, like, oh, okay. like you're sort of like constantly traveling sort of a thing and be fed and nourished by that, by the work, but also by the, the community and the, the there's something about it that I it does feel like you sort of burn bright and die young like in a less of a grim way that it's um it requires like a very strong mind I think to do it for a long time not because it's torture but because like you really have to carve out a way that your life works within this this um sort of erratic lifestyle and one that that demands that you're constantly kind of giving, not giving, you know, having collaborations that work or don't work, but that you're, there's something about it that feels young sometimes to me that you're like the student and there's a teacher, but then like you don't graduate to being the teacher in a strange well, there's, way. Do you know what I mean at all? Where there's, there's also the part of the career, which is hard, you know, where, where they're like, you book the job, you leave tomorrow. Yeah. And it's easier to do that when you're young and don't have a, a kid to take care of or something. Yeah. Um, that's happened to me at least a handful of times where they've just said, great, you booked it. Your flight's booked at 7 a.m. tomorrow. Well, And you're like, shit. Yeah. Um, if I had anything that I needed to take care of, uh, like a, another being, then I, I wouldn't be able to do the job. Yeah. Or even without a kid, like, a doctor's appointment like starting yeah yeah I, yeah it's an amazing life and lifestyle but something about it sometimes feels like it's suited to to younger people like I wonder how how to do it for a long time and how to do it in a way where you're changing your relationship to it and it it like really feeds you and um do you see yourself being an actor forever I don't know I guess that's I guess that's the question um I don't know. I really like it sometimes, but I also feel like I still maybe haven't, I've done it for 10 years, like professionally. And there's something about this chunk of time that feels like it requires a tiny, just a re-examination of, of how I feel about it because there is the, such a long time where you just feel so lucky to do it. And then there's a time which I have friends who are going through a similar thing where it's like, all right, well, what else do I like? Not different jobs, but like, how do I, how do I pair this with other things? So it's a healthy long career rather than it being the one thing that you focus on and like life is in the background, which I think is how it kind of was for me for the last 10 years, which I still had like lovely life experiences, but it was just, yeah, I felt like I was, uh, I was on one sort of type of 
journey where like work was really, really, really important. And I feel like I'd like to be on a journey where I'm looking at a, a painting of a road going into the distance now, as I say this, that's bathed in blood, actually. Um, it's <laughs> funny. Uh, but I'd like to be on a different journey where it's like my work and myself are like holding hands and taking care of each other, but it doesn't feel like it's work to the exclusion of all else. Yeah. I don't know. Also, do you ever talk about yourself and you're like, what are you talking about? That's not you. Like uh, sometimes I just don't know. <laughs> like uh, just you have a different impression of yourself, like day to day, week to week. And I don't know if that's true, but when I look at this road bathed in blood, I really feel that it is. Um, what, uh, what about this industry scares you? And is it the same thing that scared you at the beginning of your career? Mm, I don't know. I think I, I get scared of, of like, and maybe I was scared of this at the beginning of my career, of like pursuing something that I'm told everybody wants that isn't what I actually want. And... I think I, I maybe wasn't super scared of that in the beginning of my career and then got a little bit scared, more scared about it later on. I feel pretty clear about what I want now. Um, but I do think the sort of, you know, there's a, uh, a, a special type of psychosis that is induced by striving all the time or, or adding new things to the wish list and always feeling like, you're working so much and need a break. And then as soon as you need a break, you have no work. And I think that um, sort of up and down thing of like, it's all on or it's all off is uh, it induces like an unhealthy mind. Sometimes. Yeah. I think you almost have to be to have a long-term career. You either have to be crazy or like so sane. I know. I think I'm not crazy. I don't think I'm so sane, but I do think I need to really develop some better maintenance tools. Yeah. What do you think, what do you think has, you've had such a successful career in 10 years. What do you think has contributed to that? Like what part of your personality? I can tell you my opinion on it, but I want to hear yours first. Um, I don't know. I have two uh, answers. One is like, I feel like I got so fucking lucky and just skipped the line a bit when I was younger, like graduated from theater school, had a big crash emotionally, was struggling for a summer and then auditioned for this, uh, movie that just so happened to use like improvisation as its way of storytelling. And it was like exactly what I'd studied at the Meisner school for the two years that I was attending it, that I just graduated from. And, it, and by doing this movie with these people, it just felt like I got to skip. Like I got a big agent right away, right out of theater school. I was with UTA. I'm still with them. Like that's kind of crazy. And I always felt like I got this little gift that kicked me forward. Um, and then I also think honestly that like going to university first and having a whole other life and like set of interests and developing 
my mind in a direction that wasn't in the exact same way as you, like that wasn't exclusively towards acting. I just felt, even though I was scared about not being an actor when I started out, I felt like fine. And like, I, I felt smart and like I could talk to people about things and I could enter rooms and usually have read one of the books that I saw on a shelf and be able to start a conversation. And it's a really simple thing, but I feel like it, like getting a degree in English literature and women's studies doesn't feel like it's a pathway towards like any career at all at the time. But when I look back on how it's influenced my, my acting, I feel like it's, it gave me a, I don't know, like a, I'm happy I, I had that in my mind and that experience in my mind to approach both work on a, a practical level with scripts and stuff, but also on a social level of meeting people and, and yeah, that's what I, I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, last question. I'm going to let you go. Yeah. Um, I interviewed Anthony Porowski okay. as my second interview and I told him that he was my most famous friend <laughs> and he said that you're our most famous friend. We or no? (laughs) I love this question so much. It's so stupid and also like absolutely bonkers. Have you ever been with me anywhere where I've ever been stopped or talked to or had any experience? Anthony like can't leave his house. He's like one of the most famous people in the world. Uh, Maybe that's not true, but he's really like it's just like a funny humbleness to be like, no, no, <laughs> Mackenzie is like it just doesn't track with reality at all. But I love that he's trying to get away with it. That he got out of answering that question in exactly the same way I am, except mine's no. rooted in truth. Um, yeah, no, I, okay. I'd say no. Okay, that's really all I wanted to know. Okay, in this whole interview. Yeah, well, and I'm so glad <laughs> that we wrapped it up right where it deserved to be wrapped up. Um. Who's the most famous? Uh, Thanks so much for being my guest. It was so nice to chat with you. It was so nice to chat with you. Thank you for all the questions. And And the friendship. (laughs) The friendship. And I can't wait to see what else -hmm. else you got going on, you know? Hmm. Same. Can't wait for your show. Thanks. I'm so scared. Still. Okay, I'm going to let you go. Well, I love you, Carol. Thank you. I love you, too. And we'll talk soon. Um, Just answer the texts when they come in. Do you know what I mean? I know, but I, it's morning, my time, when I get them. It's the stupidest. It's, it's, it's insane. I just need to get better at um, being a functioning human. Okay. Best of luck. Thanks so much. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you again, Mackenzie, for taking the time to speak to us about your career. So after I stopped recording, I got scolded by Mackenzie because during the podcast, I asked her what part of her personality has contributed to her success, and that I had my own ideas as to what that was. But then I never actually said it because we moved on quickly to another topic. And in true Mackenzie fashion, she wanted to know. So to answer her question, I told her that I always found that her self-confidence was one of the things that I loved watching in her acting. Regardless if it's a silly exercise in theater school or doing something on the big screen, she goes for her choice at 150% and is not afraid of making choices outside the box. She doesn't try and get things right. She follows her gut and she makes it her own. 
And I think that has been one of the things that has really made her stand out among other actors. So there you go, Mackenzie. Okay, that's it for now, and I will be back with another episode definitely as soon as I record one.